You've likely heard the reports of a record number of ships waiting off of the port of L.A. in order to wait to be unloaded, uh, blaming the shortage of drivers, warehouse workers, and an explosion of e-commerce orders is the reason for this influx. But with any situation that involves so many moving parts, this requires a level of nuance to see the bigger picture. So helping us to break down why the global supply chain is in such disarray and how to fix it all is the host of Let's Talk Supply Chain, Sarah Barnes-Humphrey, and the host of Navigate B2B, Steve Ferreira. They're going to be helping us break it all down in today's episode. Welcome into another episode of Cyberly. I am your host, Blythe Bramleave, and on this show, we cover B2B marketing, the attention economy, and how it all fits into the world of logistics. And in today's episode, we have our guest that I just mentioned, Steve Ferreira, and we also have Sarah Barnes-Humphrey. But the first topic I want to dive into today is the news of the week, according to the social media world, and that's Facebook's troublesome week, then what it means for your digital strategy. So let's go ahead and and try to put ourselves in the the relationship with social media into perspective. Because on Monday of this week, Facebook and its own properties, Instagram and WhatsApp, went down for the majority of the day. And when I say the majority, I mean the majority of the workday. In total, it was about six hours. But it cost $6 billion in losses, mostly from ad revenue and mostly from the, the the loss of ad revenue and, and the stock price dipping. It was so much that it knocked founder and CEO Mark Zuckerberg down a notch on the list of the world's richest people. Topping that list, of course, is Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, Bernard, Bernard Arnott, Bill Gates, and now, sadly, Zuckerberg is rounding out that top five spot. I'm sure he's just breaking down in tears over that loss of billions of dollars, which, I mean, anybody would be, but in it, relative to his amount of money that he has, he's probably not all that worried right now. But this also is coming. This, that news or that downage on Monday came after, on Sunday night, CBS 60 Minutes, they released a special report that was essentially called the Whistleblower Report. And they dropped a major story pretty much confirming what a lot of us already know, especially those in the digital marketing space, is that polarizing posts drive more engagement. And so for the the folks who who don't really know how an algorithm sort of works, signals, whenever a polarizing post is is posted to a, a place like Facebook or on Twitter, that signals to the algorithm, especially when you engage with it, that you will stay longer on the platform and they will show you more ads similar and they will show you more posts that are similar to that same post that made you angry. Platforms like Facebook make money by having you stay on the platform longer and give your attention to them. So they show you what is going to keep you there longer. And many media companies have since made the transition to lean into those stories that will make you angry, that are polarizing. So it's kind of a two-way street where media companies are creating the content that are going to make you mad in the first place. And then social media algorithms like Facebook and Twitter and Instagram are also going to show you those things that tend to make you more upset, that tend to make you comment more, share it with your friends, save it to your you know your your account profile these are all things that social media platforms do now what was really found out in the report is that facebook knew this 
all the way back in 2018. Of course, they knew it when it was signaled whenever the elections of 2016 occurred. But in 2018, they knew that these polarizing posts were making people angrier on on their platform, but they were doing their job and keeping people on the platform. So what they did is they altered the algorithm in order to show you posts that make you angry. So they altered it even more to play into those those things that already make us angry. Uh, so they they saw the engagement. They did all they've done these things in other countries and they've been doing this in the US for years now. And so that was the main crux of the report is that Facebook knows this. They have the ability to, for lack of a better phrase, sort of turn the knob a little bit to make you angrier or to make you less angry with the posts that they show. So back in 2018, they chose to to do this, to to turn on, turn up the angry factor. And back in 2020, they turned it down a little bit because of the election. They didn't want to be blamed for another, you know, election win or a loss, whatever side that you you tend to lean more towards. So they dialed it back a little bit in 2020. And now in 2021, they it, it's it's been said that they have not put those safeguards up even more in 2021 because they know that the u- the usership on Facebook is is not as good as it used to be. They've sort of tapped out as far as their US-based market is concerned. And so they have to, because the, the, the growth market is no longer there for them, their job as far as the US is concerned and as far as their shareholders and people that they have to report to is on the board, they have to drive more profits. And the way that they do that is by keeping the people who are already on the platform there longer. So between the 60 Minutes story and now the the group of hackers taking down the platform for hours on Monday, it obviously led to a lot of snarky comments that you could find all over the other social media platforms that were still uh, up and running. One of those, you probably already know it before I say it, but Twitter, that's where a lot of the snark happens, especially when it's breaking news and especially given the opportunity to make fun of another social platform like Facebook and like Instagram. So you saw some of those snarky comments where some of it was, you know, now, you know, my mental health is already, you know, recovered with the six hours that Facebook and Instagram were down, which, yeah, could probably happen. But on the flip side, other people were like, now keep it off for good. We don't need Facebook back. Keep it turned off. Um, And then there's also, you know, the meme of like the, the imagery of the a highly advanced civilization, human civilization with spaceships and, and futuristic looking buildings. And the, the, the connotation around that is this is what society is going to look like with Facebook and Instagram down. So of course, things like that, we can kind of get caught up in the jokes. But when things like that happen, it's also very important reminder because I kind of brushed this off that some of the people were saying, oh, my mental health is so much better. But that is actually rooted in truth because some of the smartest people in the world can't handle the influx of information that we receive on a daily basis now. You know, from a biological perspective, we are only built for a certain amount of information. So when you have this influx, this almost tidal wave of information coming your way nonstop every single day, it's very difficult to process all of that in in a way that our brains can can process it. Take, for example, uh, this this show, Hidden Brain, which is one of the better podcasts that's out there. I highly encourage anyone to go listen to it. But they were talking about the reasons of why humans gravitate towards negative comments and negative stories. And it's because from a biological perspective, from an evolutionary perspective, 
humans are trained, their, their eyes are trained to look for the negative, look for the bad signs, look for the bad plants, look for the, the, the bad, you know, the things on the ground, look for, you know, dangerous animals. Our brains are programmed to see the bad in order to encourage survival. This is why whenever you you post something maybe online and it gets a bunch of negative comments or it gets a bunch of positive comments and you get one negative comment, you'll be thinking about that negative comment much longer than you will all of the positive that you just saw. That's wired in our brains in order to 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 uh, really as a survival mechanism. And so it's a really sort of, uh, I, I guess, a fascinating look into our psyche of how we're processing all of this information that's coming out on all of these different programs and how we're basically like a, a walking experiment with social media and the influx of information that we're getting and how to process it all and to, how to, to navigate a new world that we find ourselves in when we do take a forced break from these platforms and not by choice, but a forced break and how much more people feel relieved. And so if you're struggling with that, if it feels like that there is just so much negativity in the world, first, if you see this kind of content, just as sort of an FYI to encourage you, to encourage your friends, your family, tell them, don't comment on the post, don't like it, don't engage with it, don't share it. Commenting on a post only tells the algorithm because th these are, these are, highly, highly uh, powerful computers that are making these decisions of the content that you want to see. And so by commenting on it, by liking it, by sharing it with a friend, even if you disagree with it, you are telling the algorithm that you want to see more of it and that you will stay on the platform longer because you have interacted with it. So being more cautious of, of what we interact with and, and seeing things online, if it makes you emotional, it was probably by design. And so if a story or a headline makes you emotional, it's really up to you to do your due diligence, to look for the nuance, to look for the full story. One thing that I was taught years ago, especially working in sports broadcasting, is that if you hear a clip of what someone has said and it makes you emotional, you need to go and look up and see what that person was asked and see what they said before the clip that you said or before the, the clip that you saw and then see what they said after the clip that you saw, because that context can make or break the, the emotional reaction that you should or shouldn't have to, to what somebody is saying online. And even though that's a, a sports analogy, it absolutely applies to our modern day landscape. So that's sort of one side of the internet reacting to Facebook and Instagram being down. But then the flip side of it is coming from, you know, some of the social media gurus out here, because it's not, it's technically not an internet story if you can't also make a snarky comment on the status of an internet story. And I want to throw up uh, one of these tweets that, that I saw, which is really one of the only ones that I saw with this take. And I'm going to read it for you. It comes from Jack Appleby. And he said, you're going to see some, this is why you don't build on borrowed lands, capture emails, start websites and get phone numbers, tweets today with Instagram and Facebook being down. That's not universally good advice for about a million reasons. Now, he goes on to say in a series of tweets that you should essentially prioritize social media over any other digital platform that you may or may not own. And for me, I saw this and of I, I didn't. I took my own advice. I didn't comment on it because I thought it was a ridiculous take, to, to be honest. It, there is... 
I'm going to throw it right back at him because this tweet and this thread aren't universally good advice for about a million reasons. He's essentially saying that you should be building your profiles and building all of your marketing on bar on that borrowed land and that you shouldn't be taking advantage of the properties that you actually own. But I want to... I, before I, I dive too much into this on the reasons of why I disagree with the tweet, I, I, I want to put into context of, of somebody who comes from a, a social media background. And, and, and Jack, by all accounts, is somebody that comes from a social media background. He has about 42,000 followers on Twitter. Um, he has a combined following on TikTok and Instagram of about 10K. So a moderately decent following, especially on Twitter, and, and a decent following on those other two platforms. But I looked a little bit deeper and I saw that he has close to 110,000 tweets. He's been on the platform since 2009. Uh, putting those numbers into perspective, if you tweeted the max amount of what Twitter allows you, that's 100 tweets per hour, it would take you 1,100 hours to reach the amount that Jack has. That's an average of 27 tweets every day for 11 years. So obviously, he has spent a lot of time on Twitter developing and crafting his persona, crafting this plan, and ultimately leading to advice like what he just sent out about the Facebook and Instagram being down. So for me, when I saw this, it was just such bad advice. And I'm going to use his words for, for about a million reasons. But in digital marketing, and just digital strategies, social media, all of anything that you do online that you're trying to draw attention to your brand or your business, there's more than one way to skin a cat, especially in digital marketing. But if you're going to skin a cat, you don't start with the neighbor's cat. And I mean, I guess that's a kind of a good analogy. I don't know. You, you probably get exactly what I'm saying. But the majority of businesses, and we have to take this in perspective, the majority of businesses and entrepreneurs do not have time to spend hours every single day on multiple social media accounts. And I think that that is what Jack is missing in all of this. And other creators that I saw agreeing with him that I, I it was probably one of the worst tweets that I've seen in a while. And I, I, I see a lot of, I'm a Jaguars fan. So obviously I see a lot of bad tweets out there. Um, so on one side, it is important to have social media presence. That is not what I'm, I, I'm, I'm not saying don't invest any time on social media at all, but you need to be more aware of how you spend your time on social media because it is borrowed land and it is something that you do not own. You only own your website, your podcast, and your email list. And so what I preach to businesses is that I preach that you should absolutely have one platform that you own, whether it's a website, business, or email, and then have one platform that you rent out, that borrowed land. You get really good on that one network of where your audience is hanging out on that borrowed land, and then that's where the magic really happens. Because if one platform on that borrowed land goes down, you're SOL if that's the only place where you've ever built. Friend of the show, Sherry Heinish, you might know her as Supply Chain Queen. She got locked out of her Instagram account for months. And that was her main platform. Imagine if she only had an Instagram account. Imagine if you were locked out of your way to communicate with your audience and you were locked out of it for months because you took someone like Jack's advice. It, it, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense in the digital world. And so that's why if you see stuff like this out on, there's a lot of bad advice out there. And that was probably one of the worst takes that I saw about Facebook and Instagram being down because it comes back to the situation of you have to be able to have some control 
over your own destiny. And if you have a platform that you own, you can use social media to build up the platform that you own and build up your awareness. So you're not completely reliant on the borrowed land analogy. And, and, and you might suffer the consequences when and if those platforms go down. You know, who's to say that you will be locked out of your account for months at a time? And maybe that's your main source of income. But on the flip side, if you have a way to communicate, whether it's through a podcast, an email address, your website, then you can communicate with that same audience and let them know what exactly is going on. So they don't think that you've just essentially abandoned them. Um, so, so that was sort of my, you know, my take on the entire Facebook drama of the week, because we're coming into Q4, we're, we're starting to, we're, we're nearing the end of our marketing budgets for, for 2021. And we're starting to think about 2022. And so the rest of this quarter, I just want you to be thinking about how are you driving leads to your website? How are you driving leads in general? Are they actually converting on your website? Now is the time to experiment if that's not working so you can connect better with the audience that you want to have and that you want to attract and build them up in the future. So that was essentially my two my my two cents on the entire situation. That there's a lot of bad advice out there. Yes, it was it was kind of funny for Facebook and Instagram to be down for a while, but ultimately these are not good uh, people at the top of these businesses making good decisions for the majority of of the population that is actively using their platform. So if and when they go down again, you still have your backup. You still have your platforms that you actually own. It's a very important advice for for everybody out there that's looking to hone in on their digital strategy. You can experiment and you can do more fun things in the future, but you have to have something that you own to in order to experiment on the platforms that you don't own. So let's go ahead and switch gears because I I talked in the, the first part of the show about the global supply chain and how it's kind of a mess right now. Um, but it always has it always really been a mess. And now we're just noticing it more because the backlogs are continuing to, to, to pile up. So what better way to dive right into this conversation than I'm going to go ahead and bring in Steve Ferreira. He has a long list of experience because he's CEO of Ocean Audit. He's the host of Navigate B2B and he's the author of the best-selling book, navigate navigating b2b and as we bring steve on I, i'm just going to go ahead and preface this conversation with you know i i come from the 3pl asset non-asset side of things that's my hit that's my work history with you know logistics so forgive me if i sound like i have a little bit of a an elementary education when it comes to the global supply chain but i also feel like there's a lot of other people out there that are just like me that are kind of wondering what the hell is going on so let's go ahead and bring on steve and so he can maybe help break this all down for us. Welcome in, Steve. And what in the world is going on with global shipping? Well, Blythe, uh, thank you so much for having me on today. And I just wanted to give you a positive affirmation so you have good thoughts for the rest of this segment. Uh, Jags win Super Bowl 2024. How's that? Oh, thank God. We need it. We need it bad. <laughs> it's been a rough week for Jaguar fans. I think that's why I started the show off a little grumpy. <laughs> Uh, amen. Amen. And, um, and uh, by the way, I just want to say to to the uh, to your audience out there and to everyone uh, maybe new to Blythe's show is, uh, Blythe, you just do such a great job uh, broadcasting. Uh, you've been a real mentor to me and, uh, you know, Freight Waves and the global audience that's uh, uh, watching your show is really lucky to have you. So a uh, job well done. Thank you. Um, it, it, yeah, I love your show very much. And uh, Cyberly is just a great concept. You know, the global supply chain is uh, is really, you know, broken. I use the concept all the time. Uh, I have a four or five point niche strategy that a lot of my clients and, and uh, uh, beneficial cargo owners uh, ask me about in terms of, Steve, what should we do now? 
And uh, one of the central points of my uh, concepts is that, you know, what's the point of defusing a nuclear bomb once it's already gone off? I think the problems uh, in, the, in the global supply chain uh, run silent, run deep. And I actually termed, termed the, uh, the, I coined the term container geddon Blythe, because I do think that container geddon gives a real good, in, good input to your viewers in terms of what uh, retailers and consumers are going through. It's, uh, it's uh, ugly times ugly, and uh, we're in somewhat of a panic mode. And whatever you hear in the media about buying early for Christmas, uh, take heed. Uh, th- that's not fake news. Well, I'm glad that you brought up that phrase container get in can can, for folks who don't necessarily know what what's going on from I guess the the supply shortages from the containers themselves to to how I guess, you know, other companies are even contracting out. I saw a a picture of Amazon, They, they just got done painting and and shipping over all of their brand new containers in order to help with their shipping of, of their own goods. So, so tell us a little bit about, I guess, the origins of Container Geddon and, and how it's affecting us all now. You know, I, I think that the, the, uh, this issue has a, a, a lot of different roots to it. Um, some, some, th- some people could even suspect or think that the issue of Container Geddon goes back to the um, tenets of the Trump administration when uh, President Trump had invoked uh, 25% tariffs on Chinese merchandise. And that, in essence, triggered a wave of influx of containers to come in to try to beat the clock, so to speak. And then we uh, ran you know, months and months through, uh, fast forward, and then we, we come into the global pandemic where most prognosticators are thinking, okay, global shipping shuts down. Um, and what happened on the other hand is the complete opposite happened. Consumers stopped, obviously, buying services or going on cruises or joining health clubs. And what did they do? They stayed home and they bought TV wall mounts. They bought uh, um, uh, remodeling kitchens. They bought appliances. And the appliances, it's really interesting what the, what the tale or story on washes, dryers, and, and dishwashers. They were the early tenants of where we saw this container getting going. Uh, what direction we saw this going, because those are some of the first commodities that we started to see impacted by the uh, incredible consumer demand and moving into the the goods uh, equation. Now, on the other hand, one of the things that the ocean vendors, you know, you got you got to understand one thing about ocean freight is two years ago, uh, ocean freight to the West Coast might have been a thousand dollars a container. Uh, now, after container getting iterations, it's you know could be somewhere from seven to eight to ten to twelve thousand dollars a container. So one of the problems is is that the lower valued items have certainly had to absorb a higher ocean freight percentage, and at the same time, inventories are extremely low of the right products. But in the warehouses, the warehouses are extremely full. Bottom line is that. We have nowhere to put these goods. Plus, we have a ocean freight, um, ocean freight vessel operating carrier community like Maersk or Hapag Lloyd or any of the NVOCCs like uh, DHL or FedEx or Schenker. We have them doing a great job, ma- mainly on the the, air, the ocean carrier side, controlling the capacity on what type of cargo sales, uh, the vessel quantities that go on it. And so they've done a great job with their algorithms, um, actually blanking sailings. And to your readership or viewership, blank sailings mean means when a sailing is scheduled, 
but then it gets canceled. And it gets canceled in a way to artificially constrain supply and demand, and therefore, ergo, keep the ocean rates higher. So we're experiencing um, highest rates we've ever seen, shortages, and panic buying on the part of importers, and uh, an uncertain consumer demand that may wane as we, you know, depending on where we are and what experts think uh, Container Geddon might be doing in terms of plateauing. And and you bring up the the I guess the the question that I have as far as like what how do these ocean carriers how do they determine what goes on a ship and what doesn't because you got companies like Home Depot that are out here essentially securing their own container ships in order to guarantee that their freight can be moved how does that process even start to where it, it, it almost sounds like maybe their their freight was being deprioritized and so in order to guarantee that their freight can move on a reasonable schedule mm-hmm. that companies like Home Depot companies like Amazon they're out there now securing their own containers their own container ships how does that process even get started that a retailer says hey i, I think i'll go buy a container ship today well, Blythe, I think what uh, the story is here is that the ocean freight industry is is quite an old industry. I've been involved in it since uh, 1982, and I could count on you know one and a half uh, hands <laughs> the type of innovations that have really come into play in the last 20 years. And I think that one of the problems is ocean contracts. Uh, typically, um, you know, uh, a retailer would contract with a, a vendor like Hapag or Maersk or Hyundai or Hapag Lloyd. For a thousand containers at X amount of dollars, and uh, the supply chain could move those. There were no snafus at the port. There was ship capacity, so you didn't see much controversy in terms of uh, uh, contracts being enforced if the client went over a little bit or under. Um, now, now it's very difficult that the um, you know the importer, many importers think contracts are not worth the paper they're written on. Because a, a client may have contract, uh, an importer may have contracted for a container uh, rate of uh, three thousand, but the ocean vendor is saying, "Oh, sorry, if you want to get on our ship, you've got to pay eight thousand because uh, they can prioritize and get better paying cargo." So I think the issues with um, you brought up a really good issue, uh, it, uh, interesting issue before Amazon. Uh, Amazon has actually built uh, some of their 53-foot equipment in China. Walmart's built it, Schneider, uh, J.B. Hunt. And a lot of these uh, um, 53-foot containers are actually coming back over, uh, new from the factories in China, on one-way container leases back to the U.S. on these multi-purpose vessel charters that you hear uh, the media speaking about that Amazon, that, uh, excuse me, that uh, Walmart or Home Depot or some other retailers are utilizing. But it's been a uh, it's an industry that's very much in need of rehabilitation when it comes to contracting, acting between uh, uh, an Amazon and a Maersk or an Amazon and a Hapag Lloyd. Uh, they typically have not been up to this point very enforceable. Blight. Hmm. And and so I think that that you know obviously there are things in in play that a lot of these retailers can't control. But what about on on the flip side with some of the smaller retailers? Do they even stand a chance with, with you know, guaranteed freight before the holidays come up? Is that an, an option still for them? Or are they just kind of left in limbo? You know, it's uh, one of the biggest uh, behind the scenes uh, story that I follow is how the big guys, uh, the big guys, Amazon or Target, Walmart, the big 10 retailers, uh, they're doing, you know, they're not paying necessarily 
the rates that you read in the media. The media, the media puts out a rate that the, the spot rate or the market rate is $10,000. There's no way that Amazon or Walmart's paying that. However, the smaller importer, the SME guy or, or gal or company is paying that. And so one of the problems is that the value of the goods has to be able to absorb these exorbitant ocean rates. If you're bringing in a container uh, of uh, nail clippers or uh, value items that cannot support a ocean freight rate of 10,000 without increasing the uh, price at the cash register for the consumer. So Mm -hmm. small and medium-sized importers that have low-valued items have to uh, have to always have a uh, backdoor strategy of sourcing the items domestically or perhaps nearshoring in Mexico or Honduras. They have to do some other niche things to get their cost structure normalized. Hmm. And so I, I guess it's just it's it's just going to be something that we're going to have to deal with for a while. It, it sounds like I mean I think there was a CNBC tweet that I had here that said on time arrival for cargo ships is normally this in the seventy percent range, but in recent weeks only ten percent of ships are on time. Does that kind of go back to to what you were saying about you know the 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 ocean carriers can flip the script on who they accept as far as who's willing to pay that large bill? Is that the reason why they're not as on time as they used to be? I think the way to look at it is that uh, going back a year or two ago, not even a, not even two, but if you were planning a movement from your factory in in China to uh, Chicago, you you might have planned in uh, six weeks or five and a half to six weeks from factory uh, production to getting the container on board to to delivery. Uh, so let's say um, let's say basically five weeks or six weeks now you have to look at it as double because of the lack of containers, because of the fact that um, the China China production, the, the factory floors are filled. There's no way to put the goods in containers because of the, the problems in the factories in China having full warehouse floors and no space to put containers. So it's a, um, I hope that being on your show today, I'm able to show your, your viewers and listeners that it's not just a one-size-fits-all one problem. The problem mm. is as niche as as the, the item itself. So, for example, uh, furniture guys and gals, furniture importers have a completely different um, problem than, say, uh, Amazon does uh, with their uh, incredible buying power and NVOCC activity that they actually own their own NVOCC. So it's a, it's a real mixed bag out there of life. I, I feel like I could talk to you for hours about this, but I I, I want to with a you know the, the the time that we have left, I want to definitely make sure that I hit on your book because getting to your book, navigating B two B, you released it earlier this year, and you've seen some real success with it so far, which is fascinating to watch just from you know sort of the sidelines. Take me to the moment where you saw it in Times Square for the first time. What what was that feeling like? <laughs> Oh boy, uh, uh, that's uh, interesting. You put that up. It was uh, it's really surreal, and um, you know uh, the book did hit number three on the Wall Street Journal bestselling list and number eighty one in all of the uh, United States on USA Today. Incredible numbers uh, for a, a first time author. But I think for me, it was the fact that I, I realized that um, in my industry, in my space, logistics, supply chain, and mainly ocean freight, that. Uh, in freight waves, of course, I have my own show. And in LinkedIn, it turns out that there are only 10, 15 regular people that are in my industry that post regularly. And I thought to myself, mm. you know, this is just a great crown glory for me, crown jewel, so to speak, to have my book 
and to hopefully by my peers and clients be looked at as, you know, one of the the leading experts in the world on the subject. So it was a great experience and I appreciate you bringing it up. I mean, absolutely, because I've written a book before and I hated the whole process. It was such a mental drain, but I was also competing in the football world where it was as soon as it was done, I was done with the book in general. But for you, like this is, is, is something like you said that, you know, you have the opportunity to be a big fish in a small barrel and, and being able to, to put yourself in a position that uh, you're the expert when it comes to ocean shipping, which is why we had you on today's show. And, and you, you speak very eloquently about all of the, the nuance that's going on. And, and, and does that book, does it help bring in the masses as far as global supply chain? Or is it more niche based towards, you know, uh, it, people who are already in the industry that mm-hmm. want to learn a little bit more? You know, I think twofold, right? I think that one of the things about the book is to me, it, it replaces, uh, so wherever I go now, it replaces, you know, my business card. And I just say, well, you know, here's my, my book. It's a big nice. deal <laughs> because it does stimulate conversation. The book is really geared towards the fact that there are so many, what I call mavericks in logistics, supply chain, B2B. It doesn't have to be necessarily ocean. It can be entrepreneurship, entrepreneurship, a budding a budding uh, uh, entrepreneur. And what I wanted to do is I wanted to help bring those folks mainstream because I know how hard it is to bootstrap and start something from zero, which I did at Ocean Audit. I was told many times that my concept would never fly. There were no errors in ocean freight. So I I wanted to bring through navigating B2B uh, personal stories uh, and uh, uh, practical advice to all budding entrepreneurs that may be on the fence about starting their own firm. Well, well, that is so. I love that you're you're you have a very clear vision because I, I was checking out your website and it's beautifully designed. And I don't say that about a lot of websites, but it's very clear that you have a target audience in mind with both the book and the website presence, where you have two sort of very clear CTAs to to, to target that audience. How are you? I guess navigating is is a good word to use here. How are you navigating those waters? between the book and the website. And now with, with your show that you've been with Freightways for about a year now, you have one of the more, you know, the, the more fascinating shows on their platform. How are you balancing all of the content that you're now creating and towards your target audience? The content is amazing. I have people um, on LinkedIn that are always saying, hey, Steve, you know, your graphics, you're up, you upped your game, you've upped your game, you've upped your game. And I think that, uh, you know, I'm in a smaller industry in the sense that what I do with Ocean Audit, you know, refund recovery, it's very niche oriented. And I think there's only say, and I, and I use the number loosely, but let's say there's only 25,000 companies in, in America that really could utilize other, other right target audience for my business. Um, it is a, a, a challenge, right? The cost to find those exact precise people. You don't want to waste or blow your chance. So I think that's why I seg- segmented the website, you know, so that you have uh, strong logistics and supply chain gurus that could, can come in in one portal. And then you have strong finance and CFOs and C-levels that can come in another portal because those guys want to save and the, and the logistics folks want a way to make sure that they're on their A-game and not letting any errors go through. Because in Container Geddon, remember what we talked about earlier, just a year or two ago, prices uh, were $1,000 a container, and now they're 10000 So a small error today on a $10,000 container 
could yield a recovery as much as as much as uh, one or two thousand dollars. So I think that uh, you have to really segment the market, and that's the whole purpose between the the dual duality of the website and then the real niche marketing uh, within my FreightWaves shows and within LinkedIn. I love it. I mean, clearly, you know exactly what you're doing, and, and it's evident in, in the work that, that you've been putting out and the accolades that you've been receiving. All right, Steve, where can people follow more of your work, buy the book, do all of those good things? Uh, sure. Thanks, Blythe. Well, the best way is always, uh, I'm, uh, I'm always on uh, uh, LinkedIn 24-7, Steve Ferreira, uh, Ocean Audit. You can find me every Tuesday on Navigate B2B and, of course, OceanAudit.com. Uh, books on Amazon and BNN and anywhere where uh, excellent books are sold. So um, that's it. Thank you so much for having me today. I appreciate you coming on and we'll put all the links in the show description and in the show notes so people can find it very easily. Thank, thank you, Steve, for coming on the show. We'll have to do this again when we have more time to really dive into the nuances of it, because I, I think that you know more people need to be made aware outside of the industry rather than in. Only if you come on my show, Blythe. Uh, done. <laughs> Signed, sealed, delivered. <laughs> thank you for your time. Appreciate you, Steve. Now let, let's go ahead and, and, and go from one supply chain conversation to the host of Let's Talk Supply Chain, Sarah Barnes-Humphrey. I've been following her work for a while, for years now. She's one of the first creators uh, in all of supply chain logistics. So I'm, I'm honored to finally get her on the show. So let's go ahead and bring Sarah on in. Welcome in, Hi. Sarah. <laughs> How are you? And, hey, a plus setup. I love the mic. I love the little, I don't even know what it's called, but the show logo that's on the mic. I I, I love it all. I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to copy that. <laughs> it's a mic flag, you know, we've got to be able to advertise all the time. Absolutely. Now, Sarah, I was reading an article the other day that said that most Americans have no idea what the supply chain is. Now, and also most experts are saying to order their Christmas gifts now. So is, is 2021 the year that folks outside of the industry, whether they realize it the hard way or not, are they going to realize how important the supply chain is? Absolutely. And first, I just want to say thank you so much, Blythe, for having me on the show. I have been following you for years as well, and you do such an amazing job. So just wanted to follow up on what Steve said earlier. But yeah, I mean, <laughs> this. Yeah, and this is really the year. I mean, the UK is feeling it already. I'm getting messages. I literally got a message on WhatsApp this morning from my cousins that was like, what is going on right now? Because we have empty shelves in the grocery store and they're even unable to purchase gas or what they call wow. petrol. <laughs> um, and then I saw another story on HLN the other day around the stuffed unicorn. I don't know if you saw this. But for a small retailer, it's gone from $2 wholesale to $18. Wow. And so that small retailer is not going to be buying that product because the parents aren't there out there aren't going to be paying $36 for a stuffed unicorn. And so I think it's going to be harder for parents to afford the holidays this year, which is just absolutely heartbreaking after everything that everybody's gone through in the last 18 months. I, I keep telling my friends and family, make sure you order those Christmas gifts now. But even then, it's like, I don't even know what to order. I don't know what to get people right now for Christmas. I barely know what to get them a week yep. before Christmas. And I'm usually scrambling on Amazon to get that two-day shipping. And it sounds like it's not going to happen this year. Now, now obviously, you, you're, you're the host of Let's Talk Supply Chain. You're also an entrepreneur, a business owner. But for folks who aren't aware of your career backstory, can you give us a, a, a little bit of a breakdown of how you got into this industry? 
Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So I literally went into this industry right after high school. My dad owned a private freight forwarding company just outside of Toronto. And I started off as reception and really worked my way up. So I worked in the trucking division. I worked operations for eight years. So air freight, ocean freight, customs, warehousing, you name it everything to do with operations. I absolutely did it. And then I went into sales for eight years and sold all of those services. And uh, so that's really the background. I've spent over 20 years in the industry, just really understanding it, not only from a shipper's point of view, but also from like a logistics point of view as well. And so with that history, you were one of the first to really get started with content marketing, one of the first in all of supply chain in order to have a, a, a podcast. Why, why did you feel drawn to starting a podcast, especially when it was so early on and especially in an industry where it's really early on? Yeah. So I was director of sales and marketing. And as a freight forwarder, it was really important for us to be able to get our brand story out there and really differentiate ourselves from the competition. <laughs> but I was looking out in the industry to really see what was out there and what everybody was doing. And it was really stuffy and it was just not fun. <laughs> and I was listening to a lot of podca podcasts at the time. And I thought, well, hey, if Lewis Howes can have his own podcast, why can't Sarah Barnes have <laughs> and and that's how it was born and this was back in 2016 I asked uh, a guy from my customs department to be my co-host and so very early on tongue-in-cheek we called it two babes talk supply chain just to see how far we could push the envelopes of the industry and that is really just how it got started and and you've had a couple evolutions of the show. Uh, and more recently, you've added an, an affiliate. So now there's another version. It, correct me if I'm wrong. There's another version of the show, but it's more based in Asia. Is, is that correct? Yeah. So we've actually franchised the podcast. I don't know if there's any other podcasts that have done this out there. I don't think there is. But we franchised the podcast to Asia Pack. And so it's called Let's Talk Supply Chain Asia Pack. And they're going to be doing the same things that we're doing in North America, but really focused on the Asia Pacific market and what's happening in supply chain over there um, and focusing on brands over there as well. So we can get an idea of who's out there and what exactly are they doing. And we're looking at Europe next um, because we nice. always want to use the platform to elevate the voices in our community. What are some of the storylines that you're seeing coming out of, of the new show versus your more North America-based show? Are there any similarities? Are there any uh, differences that we should know about? Well, so they're just getting started. And so the first couple of shows has really been around thought leaders in that space. And so uh, Jonathan Kempe, who is the host of Let's Talk Supply Chain Asia Pack, he has, uh, in the first episode, he really focused on mariners and seafarers um, because it's a really big challenge right now, especially during COVID. They are the ones that make sure that 90% of global trade are moved across our oceans, and yet they are treated very, very poorly. And so there's a couple of people in the space that he's very close to, and he wanted to bring that story to life. And that really is the backbone of you know, who he is and what he wants to bring to life and the network that he has over there and how we can really support the human element of supply mm -hmm. chain. And so that 
the first couple of episodes have really been about the human element and then talking about manufacturing in Vietnam as well. So it's really about shining a light on the areas that that deserve to have that light shined on them. And, and as I bring that up, it, it brings me to my next question, because you've really been a pioneer as far as showcasing women in supply chain. Tell us a little bit about why you got that series started and, and if you have a favorite story from that series so far, because you've been doing it for a while, right? I have. We. I actually just put out a video today that says that we have featured over 50 women since we wow. started the series back in January 2018. And the reason why I started that series was because I wanted to learn from other women in this space. And I knew I couldn't be the only one, right? And so I <laughs> literally was just like, okay, we're going to start a woman in supply chain series on the podcast. We're going to learn about their journeys. We're going to learn about how they think about things and what their perspective is. And I think everybody can learn from that. And I've had so much amazing feedback from that series. And we had you on. Um, you were part of the blog. And we got to learn a little bit more about you and your journey. And that's what it's really all about. I mean, I created this platform so we could elevate the voices in the industry. And so... That's really been something very, very special for me. And I don't really have a favorite story. Um, all of the stories are my favorites because they're very different from each other. And everybody has, a, has had a different journey in supply chain. It's all looked a lot different. But what it did was it led me to really take a look at diversity and inclusion in the industry. And so I've now expanded that into a second podcast, a standalone podcast called Blended which is like Red Table Talk on Facebook, but for podcasts. And I'm bringing oh, wow. different people, different walks of life together to talk about different diversity and inclusion topics. And let me tell you, I think I cry every episode, but not mm. because it's, you know, it's emotionally draining, but because when we finish, everybody says, I felt heard today. Thank you very much mm. for creating that space. And and obviously, I mean, that's that's something that uh, I, I would encourage everyone to go and subscribe to because that, those are the stories that aren't being told enough. And so, you know, obviously it takes someone that's that's forward thinking like you in order to start a podcast to begin with, you know, franchise it out, start up a, a woman in supply chain, start up those conversations that are that are difficult to have at a corporate level. But bringing those, those stories to light, I think, is incredibly important. And and. With all of that said, and all of the things that you've gravitated towards marketing wise, you know, podcasting and blogging and things like that, that were, you know, very new to the industry back then. Are there any sort of marketing strategies that you're doing today that you still absolutely believe in? And then are there any ones that you want to experiment with in the future? Consistency, consistency, consistency. <laughs> I think you could probably agree with me on that one. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> right. I have been preaching that from the very beginning. And I learned that right from the very beginning is that as long as you are consistent in your timing, you know, like how often do you do it? When do you do it? Um, it just naturally grows and more and more people sort of jump onto that. Um, and so that's the one thing that I have always held onto and something that I always tell brands. Yeah, I, I, absolutely. It, when he, as soon as you said it, I, I thought you, maybe you were going to go like, oh, TikTok, like I'm going to try, you know, more TikTok. But when you said consistency, I was like, oh, that one's that one's one that sticks with me for years. And I think that's that that's one of the bigger reasons why I do this show each week is that it keeps me from making excuses 
to avoid creating content. And, and I think that that's, um, you're also a tech founder. I, I, I do want to mention that, that you founded a company um, within uh, just recently that's called Ships and it's uh, essentially a SaaS tool, correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It makes it easier for both sides to quote and book like air and ocean freight shipments. Um, less emails, more collaboration. And that's really what we wanted to do. Keep it really simple, but a way for shippers to work so much easier with their freight forwarders to be able to get uh, rates and be able to book their air and ocean freight shipments, which I mean, with rates right now, I think I posted yesterday, it's at $31,000 for a 40-foot container from Hong Kong to Toronto, which Oof. is just crazy. So, I mean, obviously with your marketing background and, and, and knowing where, you know, there, there are problems that arise that you can create those solutions. I, I think that it's important for other tech founders and just other entrepreneurs in general to know the value of content marketing. But for those who are on the fence, what's the, the best advice that you could give to someone that's thinking about starting up their own podcast or maybe their own YouTube series or maybe even their own TikTok? What advice would you give to a first time creator in this industry? Um, I would say learn from those who have come before you. <laughs> They've probably made the mistakes that you want to avoid. And so you definitely want to take a look at what they've done well, what they've done not so well. Maybe partner with somebody, you know, partner with somebody like me, partner with somebody like Let's Talk Supply Chain or Freight Waves or whoever to really be able to um, hone that story and give you platforms to be able to tell that story. And if you're going to do it on your own, you want to be consistent in your delivery. Like we were talking about before, you've got to keep going because it just doesn't happen overnight. And, and now with the, the ethos of your show, because I echo that statement, it does not happen overnight. Do not think you're going to start a podcast and start getting leads from it two months later. It's just not realistic. Um, but with with all of that you've done, the, the, the focus of your content is on the supply chain. So so from a, I guess, a, a, a casual fan perspective, what do you think are the major issues that are going on? And if I gave you a magic wand, how would you fix them? Well, first of all, from an environmental standpoint, I would say the congestion. I mean, the, just the sheer fact of the number of vessels that are out in the water outside of L.A. and Long Beach and, you know, the oil spill that that happened just a few days ago and, and mm. how much they're cleaning up and how much it's affected so many more people. And now I'm not saying that it was a cargo ship that that uh, caused that. But at the end of the day, it's, a, it's an environmental crisis that we've got all of those vessels uh, sitting out there. And it's also, you know, the crews as well, the crews that are on these ships. And from a mental health standpoint, we need mm. to get these vessels moving. And I think also the prices, if I had a magic wand and we could go back to pre-COVID levels, because the mental health of our supply chain professionals right now we really, really, really need to, you know, talk to them and give them a space to vent their frustration because there's so much pressure from so many different directions, especially, you know, from a pricing standpoint and get, being able to get space and getting product here and things like that. I just, those are the two things that if you gave me a magic wand, I would want to change today. And so with all of your, 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 you know, your content plans and the things that you've got, you know, going on with, with uh, various different shows and, and, and businesses that you own, what goals are you hoping to knock out for the, I mean, you've already done a lot, so I feel like kind of a jerk even asking that, but what goals are you hoping to achieve for the rest of this year? And, and which ones are you hoping to tackle in 2022? 
Yeah, no, it's a great question. And I'm always thinking about it. I don't know about you, but I'm constantly thinking about how do we do things differently, right? Um, But for this year, you know, brands booking with us for 2022, right? So we can work on some amazing strategies to help tell their stories, to give them the platform that they need. Because at the end of the day, supply chain professionals are looking for you. They just don't know necessarily where you are or how you can help, right? And for 2022, you know, changing the landscape of speakers and attendees at industry events so that we can see a visual impact in DEI, uh, not only with the Blended Podcast, but the Blended Pledge that a group of us are working on because we want to see a more visual impact from a diversity and inclusion perspective, not only on stages, but also attending events Mm. as well. And so that's a really, really, really big goal of mine for next year. I love that you brought that up because I always kind of joke about it with friends and, and, and colleagues that going to a supply chain or a logistics conference, the bathroom line for the women's restroom is always super short, while the male bathroom line is always mm-hmm. super long. And it's like, oh, wow, this is kind of great. But then when you think about it from that perspective, it's not so great. And we, we absolutely need to get uh, more women in the industry and 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 even just the, the mass awareness of the industry and the opportunities that are ahead of them if they even just choose to think about. Uh, working in supply chain and working in logistics. All right, Sarah, where can people follow more of your work, your shows, all that good stuff? Letstalksupplychain.com. Also follow Let's Talk Supply Chain on LinkedIn. You can find me on LinkedIn, Sarah Barnes Humphrey. And we're also on TikTok. I didn't mention this earlier, but Let's Talk Supply Chain is on TikTok. And um, we create some, some fun stories on there as well. So go follow us there. I love that. Embrace the new world that we live in as far as technology and content is is concerned. So so thank you so much, Sarah, for for joining the show. We'll link to all of those different platforms within the show notes and the show description so people can can find that pretty easy. Thanks so much, Blythe. Thank you. Now, I I mean, obviously, we've covered a lot in in today's show. We talked about Facebook. We talked about taking, you know, your own platforms and, and, and also using borrowed lands and which strategy that you should employ. Now, we just heard from two creators that started up their own show and it's helping to to generate business for them. And that's the reason why we have our own platforms that we own. And then we use social media to get the message out there. So that's two prime examples of how you can be using uh, both digital and owned borrowed land properties and both owned properties in order to further your message and further your business goals. Now, as as far as the, for the rest of this year, as it with Cyberly is concerned, I'm going to help you cover those topics, understand what items you need to be having on your website, what items you need to be strategizing as far as social media and distribution is concerned. That's going to be coming in future episodes. So it was a really great, fun discussion with both Sarah and Steve on what the hell is going on with global shipping. So I hope that that sort of sheds a light for the folks who were a little bit ignorant to the topic and afraid to ask um, these very important questions. So now you can go back to your family and you can break it down for them even more on how they need to be ordering those Christmas gifts like right now or even just skip the gifts and buy an experience. I think that that goes a lot further than uh, just simply trying to find something on Amazon at the last minute. Spend some time with the people that you love. If we learned anything over 2020, that is what we should be prioritizing. So thank you to everyone for tuning into the show. If you missed parts of this show, you can check out FreightWaves.com or the FreightWaves TV app to catch replays. Just simply search for Cyberly. Once again, I am Blythe Burley with DigitalDispatch.io, and I will see you back here right next week at 2 p.m.